The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit shadygrovepca.org. All right, we're continuing our study of Mark and a question for you. Other than the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, what is the only miracle that occurs in all four Gospels? Take a guess. <laughs> the feeding of the 5,000, yes. So it's the only miracle that occurs in all four Gospels. So obviously it's a big deal. And this left a big, uh, obviously, impact on the disciples. And uh, for obvious reasons, um, if you were to call your spouse and say, hey, uh, we have some extra people coming for supper, what's the first question your spouse is going to ask? What are you cooking? Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> How many are we feeding? And if I call Susie, we're doing a lunch, and she's the head of our hospitality, and she always wants to know, how many should we prepare for this lunch? And how many people are coming to this lunch? I mean, it's 5,000 men, and one of the other Gospels says, and that did not include the women and children. So we know we got at least 10,000, probably, probably between 10 and 25,000, Susie. That's how many are coming for lunch. How are we looking? And next question she's going to ask is, well, how much food do we have? What do we have for 10 to 25,000 people? And the answer is five loaves, two fish. But as Philip wisely says in the Gospel of John, but what is that for so many, right? So one of the other Gospels says that. Philip, Philip wisely is like, what is that? What is five loaves and two fish going to do for that many people? And so obviously we have... Uh, a big text before us, what does Jesus want us to see? And I think it's this. As we go through this text, we want to see who Jesus is and what are we to do in response. Well, I think we want, he wants us to see that he can do what we cannot do. He can do the impossible. And we're called in Scripture to trust in the Lord with all of our heart and lean not upon your own understanding, your own calculator, of what you factor in is what we can do. And we're going to look at this old, old story, and may it be a new, new story in our lives this morning. Let's give attention to Mark 6, 30 to 44. The apostles returned to Jesus, told him all that they had done and taught. He said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. 
But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of food and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. And then he commanded them to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. He divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Let me pray for us. Lord, there's something here for each of us. And this is your word. And we ask that, Lord, it would satisfy our hearts, that we would uh, see what Christ has done, what he is doing. We thank you, Lord, for all this ties to the, to the past, to the Old Testament, but also to the new heavens and new earth. And we pray that we would be full of hope and that you would renew our faith as we look at this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's first start off with remembering what we might have forgotten last week, because the context is pretty important. And Mark is purposely contrasting this feast with the feast of last week. And what was the feast last week? Well, it was Herod's birthday bash, stag party, only guys, guys hangout night, full of gluttony, drunkenness. It was for elite people only. In verse 21, we're told it was for the nobles, military commanders, and leading men of Israel. It was for the prominent. It was for the VIPs. But we remember this party did not end on a good note at all. We see that Herod is a terrible shepherd. And when we read passages about being a good shepherd, like we just heard Psalm 23 and Ezekiel 34, when you hear that, I think our natural inclination is to think literal shepherds, literal sheep, and then pastors and a flock. And we forget the other big biblical category, which is king. Kings were shepherds. They were to be good shepherds like Moses, like David, but better. And so all three times in the Old Testament where there's a reference to sheep without a shepherd, which Jesus quotes here, it has the idea of a shepherd being a king or military leader of his people. So I want you to first sink that into, in, down deep so that when you see shepherd in the future, you don't just jump to a New Testament idea of pastor flock, but Old Testament idea of king, head of an army, head of big leader leading his people. That was the idea of a shepherd. So like, for example, Numbers 27... 15 to 18, Moses spoke to the Lord saying, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go before them and come in before them, who shall lead them and bring them in so that the congregation of the Lord may, may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit and lay your hand on him. So Moses praying for a successor, one who would lead the people, and the Lord said to Moses, from the Septuagint, take Jesus, because it's the same word in the Septuagint in the Greek Old Testament. So 
it's Joshua, and Joshua is the same Greek word as Jesus. And what does Joshua do? He's a military leader who takes them into the promised land, and they, they conquer as they go. He's a good leader shepherd. 1 Kings 22 would be another one. The other one's Zechariah 10. You can read that on your own, 1 to 3. But in 1 Kings 22, you might remember this story of a guy that Ahab convinces Jehoshaphat, will you go into battle with me? You know, there's this big battle, and, you know, we've got a foreign invader, and Israel and Judah, they're, they're separate kingdoms, but let's unite, let's come together, and let's go into battle together. And Ahab is wicked, and Jehoshaphat's a good king, but we see what peer pressure does, and so he tells Jehoshaphat, will you go with me? And, and Jehoshaphat says, well, can we at least hear from a prophet? Let's hear a word from the Lord. And Ahab really doesn't want to do that because every time he hears a word from the Lord, it's a bad word, but he agrees. And Micaiah prophesies and says, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, they have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. Don't even go to war. Are you crazy? And the king of Israel, Ahab, says to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? And if you remember the story, Jehoshaphat dresses up in all the kingly garb while Ahab disguises himself, but somebody takes their bow at random bling, and shoots it and hits him right in the opening chink between his armor, and Ahab is going to die because he's a bad shepherd. So that's the point, okay? So there's a contrast between shepherds, between Herod and Jesus. Herod is a bad shepherd, and this shepherd is only thinking about himself. He's pompous, he's proud, he's a coward, he lacks compassion, he serves his own needs. He'll make himself look good so that he'll honor his word, and in doing so, John the Baptist's head is delivered on a platter to Herodias' daughter, and the, sh and the flock are scattered so the context, verse 29, if you just look back up one verse, when the disciples hear about this, his, they came and took his body minus his head and laid it in a tomb. And early church history, Josephus actually said that uh, with J John the Baptist, they actually, she took his tongue and like started like piercing, different tongue piercings in his tongue. And anyway, it was pretty nasty. The point is, when you read the context, you may forget that the context is grief, persecution, oppression, and big need for R&R. We've been out doing ministry, and now we've had to bury this great prophet, the greatest of the prophets, and they've just buried him. And Jesus says, come away. Come away. You need some rest. Come away for a while. That's where this context is. Come by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Sounds great, doesn't it? A quiet weekend getaway with Jesus. And we're told at verse 31 that they're not just tired, they're not just grieving, they're not just, you know, thinking through all this persecution and oppression, but we're told in verse 31, at the end of verse 31, what do you get? They're hungry. They haven't even had a chance to eat. And so their vacation spot, they didn't have a car, they didn't have a train, 
There was no automobile. There's no cruise ship. There's no plane. The way you get to your vacation is the fishing boat. And so we've got to do this. And it's four miles away to their desolate spot to cruise on over to their desolate place. Now notice the word desolate place since we're sometimes... We need repetition so that we can really get what Mark is saying to us. How many times did it say desolate place? Verse 30, the end of verse 30, or middle of verse 31, middle of verse 32, and then again in verse 35. Three times we are told this is the Eremon, the, the desert, the wilderness. It's a wilderness theme so that you would get wilderness, wilderness, wilderness. Old Testament, Old Testament, Moses feeding the people, manna from heaven. This is it. Like, are you getting the imagery? Three times. We miss it sometimes in the English translations because it's translated desolate, but it's the word wilderness. He's taking them over to this wilderness spot, and he's wanting us to see that Jesus is the new and better Moses. He's better than Moses. He's going to be better than David. He's even a better king than that. And so all's made ready. They've made their journey. Vacation has begun, but they still haven't eaten. They have to row their four miles. And that moves us from the plan, the vacation plan. We're going to go from the plan to the problem, to the pity, to the provision. But the plan was get away vacation for a weekend. We all like that. But we got a big problem in verse 33. Problems beginning to arise. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. It's like, you know, you're, you're, you're Prince William and you're going on vacation, but the paparazzi and everybody and has all seen you coming and they're all already there at your vacation spot. And you get the sense when you just read this chapter and when it says they ran there on foot, and if you look down to verse 55, and it says that when Jesus got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. So wherever Jesus is now, now that he's showing up, people are running. They are on a running brigade. I mean, he's created, it's chaos all around him. People are literally running to get to him. And they have, commentators think that they rode their four miles and a lot of these people ran 10 miles. And, you know, obviously as they're going, they're picking up people as they go. And so not everybody's running the 10 miles, but, you know, this thing's picking up steam. And so this nice, quiet R&R, Houston, we, we have a problem. We can, see on the, we can see them coming, you know. You've got to be thinking, you know, as these disciples are rowing, you know, like, oh, this is not looking good, Jesus. And so it's kind of like, you know, Bob Wiley has... Uh, you know, and what about Bob? And he's in Lake Winnipesaukee and he can hear, you know, Dr. Marvin, Dr. Marvin, as soon as he gets off the bus, you know, and Bob Wiley's just starting to come unglued, you know, because his quiet vacation in Lake Winnipesaukee is going down the tubes. And there is something about vacation. I mean, how many of, how many of your best marital spats have happened Leading to vacation, on vacation, or on your way home from vacation? Anybody? I mean, like, vacations are like, because 
when you go on vacation, it's kind of like, from what about Bob, you know, we're going to take a vacation from all our problems, and you think when I go on vacation, the problems will go away. And so there's these expectations of this private R&R with Jesus, and they're going there, and you're starting to see, we got a big problem. And I could just remember growing up, this is a shout out to my mom who's listening. We used to go to the Outer Banks every year in, in North Carolina. And my, my dad, the first year that we moved beyond a camper to actually doing a rental at a rental house, he let me, for some reason, pick the vacation spot of the rental home. And so me being the good, you know, eighth grader or whatever grade I was in, I was thinking, we're going to get a deal. You know, we're trying to find something that's going to be inexpensive. And so I picked the infamous Thomas Cottage, which to this day our family still cracks up about the Thomas Cottage because my dad slowly became uncorked. When we got there to the Thomas Cottage, which was very low in its rent, and you get what you pay for, which I didn't know at the time, but I thought we had a great deal. When we got there, it was pretty primitive. There wasn't really anything nice about the place. And the walk to the beach was a little longer than we were expecting. There really was no privacy in this house. It was kind of tight. And then things just started to get humorous. I mean, you couldn't even call what was put up around the walls. as You couldn't say there was a carpenter who did this work. I mean, it was more like a drunken carpenter. I mean, the, the trim work was just terrible. And even as a middle schooler, I could, like, chuckle at how bad it was. And then my dad had some issues with his back. I mean, he had a couple back surgeries, and so he needed a good bed. Well, the, the Thomas Cottage did not provide a good bed. And so there was one or two nights where he literally slept out in the car. He was, and at this point, he's, he's becoming, you know, Dr. Marvin. He was starting to lose it, okay? But the kicker of which he finally kind of went into orbit was the morning that he put in the toaster and he clicked the toaster down and when the toaster came up, it only toasted on one side. <laughs> and that was just the absolute, he just, at this point, he just kind of melted down from the Thomas Cottage. And, but after that, I can tell you, we had great vacations after that because he just, nobody else is picking and he picked nice places and no more Thomas Cottage. But, Anyway, it's just funny. I mean, I'm sure you have stories in your own house of like what you're anticipating, what you're expecting. The disciples had their expectations. The title of the sermon is Many Are the Plans because the plans are all going awry. And they get there and no sooner than their feet touch ground and there's this great crowd. And when Jesus sees them, he's not crusty. He has compassion. Look at that in verse 34. I mean, Jesus is tired. Disciples are tired. He has compassion on them. And so he sees that they're sheep without a shepherd. And so Jesus begins to teach them. And so now they're having this nice conference. And this isn't like the conference that you've gone to, you know, where you're at a conference and, you, you know, you look at the program and it says, you know, 12 to 1.30, lunch on your own. You know, it's a nice city and you've got, you know, oodles of locations and you can go to anywhere you want and come back at 1.30 and then there's another spot for dinner and lunch on your own, dinner on your own. They didn't have that. I mean, you know, I mean, just as an aside note, I mean, we, we can't even 
read a text like this and really kind of grasp it because we live in a world where there's an average of 420 subways in a state. Okay, there's a, that's the largest restaurant in, in the U.S. Doesn't make the most money. McDonald's has got them beat. But there's more subways. There's probably, you could walk to a subway. In most states, you could walk to a subway before you would run out of, of fatigue. So, or run out of gas, you know? So, you know, we just live in a world where we have food in abundance. They didn't have that. There's no little, you know, go. And so, the end of the day is coming. Jesus is still teaching them. And now the disciples, you know, are... They're, you know, you can see, like, they give Jesus an imperative. And the imperative of verse 36 is, send them away. And I was listening to Paul David Tripp this week, his sermon on this, and I just got humored with it when he said, the disciples loved Jesus, and they had a wonderful plan for his life. And, you know, and if you've grown up with the four spiritual laws, like, God loves you, offers a wonderful plan for your life, well, We've just turned that around and, God, we love you and we have a wonderful plan for your life. It's to do what I tell you to do. So send them away so we can start enjoying our vacation. And they give good reasons. The hour is late. It's a desolate place. A lot of money. Send them out so they can go and buy food in the surrounding countryside. And Jesus turns around with an imperative on his own. And he gives them an imperative. You give them something to eat. Well, what a reply that was. <laughs> what? And so then we have the question. And I love the questions. Anytime you read in the Gospels, always just stop for the questions. When you see a question, just think about it. Because they got a question for him. Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? Like, Jesus, are you nuts? If we gave all of our two-week paychecks, all 12 of us, for two weeks, that's not enough to pay for this crowd. We need a third week. That's what they're saying to Jesus. You want all of our two weeks of pay gathered up? It's not even going to feed this group. It's too big. And so they're they're really kind of, Jesus, come on, get with the program. And Jesus says, well, another question. You know, he wants to know, well, how many loaves do, you, do they have? <laughs> and the answer is, well, five and two fish. <laughs> have them sit down. I mean, I always wonder, like, what was going on at that point? Okay, have, what do you mean have them sit down? You know, so he has them sit down in 50s and 100s. And, and of course, we get this little note. It's interesting, they're in the wilderness, in the wilderness, in the wilderness, yet it's green grass. So Mark wants you to know, he's the only gospel writer that puts that in there, to make you get the connection to Psalm 23, that he's the good shepherd. He will restore our souls. He is going to give the vacation. It's just going to be a lot different than you expected. And so he has them sit down. And so we've got five loaves, two fish, and, you know, it doesn't seem like it's going to work. And it's just so much like Jesus with some of these questions, even those reflection quotes of, can God provide a table in the wilderness? This is just seems absolutely impossible. As Moses said to, to the Lord, shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together to provide for them? Like even if we took all the fish of the sea, Moses doesn't see that that's going to be enough to feed these, these people. And so 
Once again, Jesus is calling us to trust him because there's the Lord, what he's teaching in this, it seems like he is building faith in his disciples and he's building faith in us. And how does he do that? He puts us in situations that are beyond our strength. God meets us when we are weak. So he has to get us to the point where we're actually poor in spirit. He has to like number the troops and tell them, no, send all those home. They got too many troops because you're going to take glory in yourselves. I need to get the number down. Gets it down to 300. Okay, that'll be enough to, so that you'll give all the glory to me. And it's pretty obvious here that, you know, I mean, liberal scholars, they don't know what to do with a text like this. It's hilarious what they've come up with. I mean, Albert Schweitzer was one of them, and another liberal scholar, one of them is that, that Jesus actually had all this food in a cave, okay? So he has the disciples all gather around near the cave, and they, they form a bucket brigade, but all the food's in the cave, and it's going to sneak in through his little, you know, whatever he's wearing, and that they're going to bucket brigade all the food, and he's going to keep feeding these 10 to 25,000 people from the food in a cave. Of course, there's nothing in the text whatsoever that says anything like that. The other one, though, the big one is that Jesus is teaching a lesson on sharing. Because this is what liberal scholars say. Everybody actually had food, but they didn't want to share it. And so there was only one person willing to share. And then once he broke it, everybody started sharing their food. Is there anything in the text that indicates that? And how do you get 12 baskets left over? You see, people don't know what to do with the text because they just don't believe. But Jesus often will put us in a place of weakness where our, our vacation plans go awry, or the plans that you have. And all of a sudden now, you, you thought it was, was going to get easier, and now it's gotten harder. And maybe you're in one of those places right now where it's like, it's just, Lord, there's just too many things coming in. This is impossible. I can't get this done. I can't provide for the people. I can't do what you're asking me to do. I don't have the resources to do this. You're actually in a good spot. Because the Lord has said to us, what? When is his grace sufficient? His grace is sufficient in our weakness and not in our strength. And so he has them weak so that they would see that he is their all in all and that they would lean not on their own understanding and that they would see that it's Jesus. And so then in the bigger pictures, you kind of scroll out and you look backwards to the Old Testament and forwards to the new heavens, new earth. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Because clearly... God has done this before. I mean, this has echoes back to the Old Testament where they're called to worship and the manna from heaven and God is providing this manna every day. And, and then in John 6, Jesus just translates that and says, I'm the bread of life. My father's the one who was doing this before, but I'm the one. I'm the one who feeds you. I, I am the bread. And so Jesus is... He is God. He's the provider. He's completely sovereign over his creation. He's all-powerful. We also see that he's the, he is the good shepherd. He is the true and better Moses. He's the true and better David. He's the shepherd king. And a lot of these passages that talk about the shepherd, even that Ezekiel 34 passage, God is saying, I'm going to raise up a David, a king, 
Well, who's the king? He's the shepherd. It's Jesus. He's the good shepherd, and he's going to provide, and he makes, he makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside still waters. He restores our soul. Well, how does Jesus, I mean, if you just look at this like I do, you're like, okay, where did the rest actually come from? I mean, the disciples, are, their plans have gone awry. They're really wanting this vacation getaway. Did they ever get what they wanted? What do you think? I think the answer is they did. Because our hearts are always restless till they find their rest in thee, as Augustine said. And what do our hearts need more than anything? They need to be blown away by the glory of God. And when God all of a sudden comes in in his fullness and starts, it opens, turns on the lights, and you really get God, what happens? Your problems get really small. And you just worship, and you're just like, God is enough. That's what happened to these disciples. They are utterly blown away by this experience because they all four write about it. And they got the rest. They got the vacation that they so desired. It just looked totally different because what they got was the glory of God showed up. And when they see the glory of God showing up and the, what, they're all eight and they're all satisfied and a good Jew always brings around his basket. They all have a basket that they take with them and as they leave with their baskets, there's 12 baskets, each one for each disciple that's full of fish and bread as a continual reminder, look down, you hungry, you want a snack? Now I've given you, you know, you've got your 11Zs for later, but you've got your full meal, and now you've got a whole basket to take with you. He is the one who satisfies our souls. He was more than enough for them. And so we see that Jesus is actually, what he's revealing to us is that he's bringing in a new exodus. And now they're in the wilderness, but they're on their way to the promised land, and that's us. We've experienced, we're part of this new exodus. It's called the church. And we have been delivered out of bondage to sin. And we've been brought to Jesus. But now we're, we, we wander in the wilderness. And sometimes we wonder, Lord, where are you? And should we go back to Egypt? Maybe what I had before was somehow better. And the answer is always no, it's not. But we're in a journey on our way to the promised land, just as the disciples were. But we see God showing up, providing for his people, showing us he's the, he is the new manna for us to have. And so then as it points to the new heaven and new earth, we are promised what, what's before us is a marriage supper of the Lamb. Who's the, who's the most hospitable person in the Bible? Sunday school answer? Jesus. And what's he going to do when we get there? Well, we're told in Luke 12, 37, he says, Blessed are those servants who the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service, Jesus, and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. Who's going to serve you? Jesus. And what is he, who's going to provide the meal, and who's going to do all that? Listen to what it says in, in Isaiah 25. Who's the chef? On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He'll swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away 
tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. God's the chef, and he's making, he's preparing this feast. And we get a foretaste of it every time we come to the Lord's table in communion. And, he, and obviously this passage has huge implications for communion because it's the same idea of he took bread, he gave a blessing, and then he passes it out. And the, and the idea here is that he gave it to his disciples, and the idea is it's imperfect. He keeps on giving. It doesn't run dry. He just keeps giving and providing for his people. This is a food that doesn't run dry. This is a grace that doesn't run dry. You don't get to the bottom of this well and then there's no water, there's no food. He's an infinite God, infinite to satisfy your needs, and it's all to be found in Jesus. And that's what he's teaching the disciples here. So I just would ask us this morning, are we starting to learn that lesson in our own lives as we're coming back from all of the COVID craziness, and now we're starting to rebuild, and you know, you're starting to, we're still paying the emotional toll bills of fatigue. Still think there's a lot of fatigue, but is he enough for us? Are we satisfied in him, or do we still have to run off to some other place to find the rest for our souls? Come to him. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. And I'll just say this morning, we have that verse in the back of our church. And this week we had a couple people working on our building. And I was too busy tied up with the phone at the very time when they came to say their last, you know, goodbyes were done. And I'm on the phone sitting in the lobby. And these two guys are just looking at this verse. And you could tell they've never seen it before. And, it, you know, when people read that for the first time, you could have you just knocked them over with... with Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened. I will give you rest. <laughs> and they're just sitting there just dumbfounded. Like, there's nobody in, ever in their life who's ever told them that this, this yoke is going to actually give them rest, you know, and to come to me. But I'm so busy on the phone that I missed the conversation to talk to them. We have to trust that his word is enough there. But my point is, is sometimes we just get so familiar with these verses and forget how refreshing for an area that will chew you up and spit you out. And what do we need this morning? Rest for our souls. He's given us a day of rest. So enjoy this day with the Lord and his people. Let's pray. Lord, you are the satisfier of our souls. Thank you that you are the one who can multiply loaves and fishes and provide as Jehovah Jireh in ways that we cannot comprehend, cannot fathom, and to think that you will feed billions and billions of people in the new heavens and earth. We look forward to that day. We pray that, Lord, as we wait upon you, that you would be enough and that we would trust you and not grumble, complain in the wilderness. For we ask in your name. Amen.